0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You rock up, you shuffle into a school hall, you scratch out the least worse of the political choices available to you and then you make a beeline for the democracy sausage. Yes, this week on Download This Show, that is the archetype of the Australian election, but is it due for an overhaul? From electronic voting to online misinformation, counting machines to social media blackouts, what is the future of the Australian election? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is another episode of Download This Show and we are taking on the future of democracy itself. That's right. We aim high. (laughs) Our special guest this week, Catherine Manstead, Senior Fellow in the Practice of National Security at the ANU National Security College and Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX. Welcome to the show. Fantastic to be with you, Mark. And Vanessa Teague, adjunct associate professor in the Research School of Computer Science at ANU, cryptographer and the CEO of Thinking Cybersecurity. Welcome to the show. Morning, Mark. Vanessa, I'm just going to, before we get too stuck into you know, the future of democracy, people listening to this might not actually know... What does a cryptographer do, in a, particularly in the context of elections? Like, is, is it an actual job? Well, so a cryptographer is really a mathematician applied
2: to the problems associated with keeping data secure. So in the context of elections, that obviously relates to, first of all, keeping votes private. And secondly, actually, some really interesting research techniques for proving that you got the right answer without
1: revealing individual votes. Right, Okay. So is there a role that cryptographers play currently? Uh, In Australian elections, not really.
2: There have been some interesting attempts at using real cryptography in uh, New South Wales, but mostly because they didn't really engage with people who knew what they were doing, they were mostly not successful. Uh, There are some other more sophisticated cryptographic systems in other countries, such as Switzerland and Estonia. And there's a lot of work in the United States using cryptography to try to improve the paper-based electoral
1: processes in the polling place. If you had to evaluate the, I guess, the the security of Australian elections at the moment, Catherine, how would you evaluate it in, in the grand scheme of things?
0: So I'd evaluate it with, with a With a good tick, with some caveats. I think when we talk about elections in Australia and election security, sometimes uh, we might have spent a lot of time reading about fails that have happened overseas, and certainly election security is much more of a hot-button issue in America, right? And that's for a range of reasons. Their system is a lot more polarised to begin with, so there's a lot more uh, friction and fissures that can be exploited. Their election period's are also longer, uh, so there's more time for things to go wrong. And ultimately, they also run um, electronic voting machines in many of the states. Uh, It's also a patchwork of regulation and technology because there, unlike here, it's a state matter, how how you run your election, so that's a problem. Um, But those electronic voting machines in the U.S. have both in reality and also in perception uh, been a big security and trust issue for America. We're very lucky in Australia that we haven't had that same level of problem. That's not to say that the situation isn't, um, the threat environment we face isn't, isn't bad um, and potentially deteriorating in future and we can unpack that a little bit
1: more as we, as we go along. That's certainly the plan. Uh, but for you, Vanessa, if you had to evaluate the, the security of Australian elections right now as it currently stands, you know, the, the weekend, the barbecue, the paper, the ticking it off, how does that stack up for, in comparison to the rest of the world at the moment for you?
2: I agree with Catherine. Uh, it's mostly very good, but there are some significant exceptions that we need to think about and improve. The top three, I would say, are first of all, the New South Wales iVote system, which is not adequate. Second, the Australian Capital Territory's paperless electronic voting machines, which would not be allowed in most of the United States anymore. Uh, And thirdly, the Senate scanning and digitization process is pretty good but could do with some improvement in its transparency and auditing.
1: All right. So for lots of people around the country, some of that will be new. Some of that they'll, they'll have experience of it, but some of it will be um, be something that they've never experienced before. But the idea of, of, of voting online and digital voting or voting at a, at a machine, that that conceptually has been around the world for, for a long time. So one of the questions we get emailed all the time is, well, they have electronic voting in the US and then a whole bunch of places, why don't we have it here? And and what are the things that are standing in the way and what are the things that people need to consider if that was ever something that we rolled out? Now, as you pointed out, there are some sort of examples where technology is playing a role in uh, in elections. But, Vanessa, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. When you see voting at machines, right, rather than voting online, when you see voting at machines around the world, what parts of it do work and where are the risk factors at the moment?
2: The big risk factor if you're voting well two big risk factors if you're voting on a machine that doesn't produce an evidence trail are number one privacy and number two integrity (laughs) there's really only two properties that you want out of an electoral process and voting on a computer that doesn't produce a paper record has neither of them (laughs) so that doesn't mean it's a hopeless case and we can think about how we could vote on a computer in a way that did preserve some of the important integrity and a bit of the important privacy properties. So most of the better organised countries have rules for a paper evidence trail associated with their electronic voting machines. And indeed, most of the more uh, advanced parts of the United States now have rules that either the person has to vote on paper that then gets electronically counted or the voting machine has to produce a paper record that the person is encouraged to check and then that goes into a ballot box to be either counted or audited. So one way or the
1: other, we're killing some trees.
0: Yes, for evidence. <laughs> right. Can I just add one other thing there? I mean, Vanessa's bang on around the integrity and the privacy issues. Uh, this is almost the flip side of those issues, which is around trust and perception. So if we look at a lot of the uh, naughty things that Russia in particular has done in cyberspace against voting machines in America, uh, often the intention behind that foreign interference uh, and, and hacking attempts isn't actually to compromise the integrity of the vote or to change the outcome It's to draw publicity to the fact that a hack has or even may have occurred so that people don't trust the result. And to me, that's sometimes one of the hardest things to deal with because as an election official or as a government official, you're left trying to prove a negative, that either a hack hasn't happened or, if it has, that nothing uh, changed in the result as a result of that hack. So I'd add a third area there around trust, in the system, that no matter how good it is technologically, uh, people also need to believe and perceive that it is a good system that produces good, uh, verifiable results.
1: Yeah, I agree with that very, very much. I think that's a really important point, right? Because a big part of why democracy works is because kind of people have like a baseline level of trust in it, and you know you do anything to puncture or damage that trust, kind of at your peril, right, Catherine? Like if you if you do something that causes people to question the validity of a of a of a democratic process. You, you know, you run a fairly high risk, right?
0: Well, and we've not seen that any more viscerally than in 2020 in the US. So, a failure of trust in the election result led to the riots and the civil unrest in the US capital on the sixth of January. Right? That must have given, and I'm sure it did give, election officials and government officials here in Australia a huge amount of pause. Uh, what an image of what happens when you lose trust.
1: Vanessa, is there a way that you can do something like voting machines, where you get, a, you know, the, it's, it's automatically counted and you get a kind of a live number. Is there a way of doing that whilst not doing anything that could damage public trust? Are there things that you could do, because it's not just about the technology, it's also about how that technology is messaged to the Australian public. Is that doable today, Vanessa?
2: Well, I think there's certainly a role, particularly for voters with special needs, to have a computer that prints out a paper ballot. So you could go into the polling place, you could interact with a computer, you could tell it how you wanted to vote and it could print you a ballot paper that went into the box with everybody else's. And there may still be potential privacy concerns with that because you can't prove that the computer isn't connected to the internet or recording, whatever, or properly shuffling or not properly shuffling. But as an integrity issue, there isn't really an integrity issue if you can check your piece of paper and make sure that it uh, gets integrated into the ordinary scrutineering process that we already have.
1: So Catherine, does that sound like a viable future? Is there an appetite for that, do you think, Catherine?
0: I think today, 2022, the way we have our election systems, people are broadly comfortable with that. But I, I do think if we look forward to 2030, 2040 even, uh, where we think people are going to and how they want to cast their vote. Everyone loves a democracy sausage today, but have a look at the increase in pre-polling, in postal voting, even where people maybe don't necessarily need a postal vote for those special needs Um requirements Vanessa was talking about, I think we might be seeing a trend towards people valuing maybe convenience and efficiency over the warm and fuzzies of a democracy sausage. And ultimately, that's something that the Australian Electoral Commission and others will have to think about because ultimately for Australia, the end game here is voter turnout, right? And whatever we need to do to get the voter turnout, uh, and that will be matching the the election process to the expectations of the future Australian citizen, that's probably where the election is is going to move.
1: Just for people that aren't familiar, where does online voting happen already around the world? Does it work? Uh, It happens, but I don't think you could really say that it works.
2: (laughs) It happens uh, in Moscow. It happens in Estonia. It happens in New South Wales.
1: (laughs) What company? What company to be in? Uh,
2: Well, different countries take very different approaches to it. I've had a lot to do with the detailed expert public examination of the Swiss internet voting system after uh, Thomas Haynes and Olivier Pereira and Sarah Jamie Lewis and I found some cryptographic errors in it. Uh, The Swiss authorities were really interested and they cared a lot about trying to improve the system. Uh, I still don't think the system meets its goals, but it happens in a lot of countries in the world. Right. Specifically, the Swiss have very, very strong regulations around privacy, verifiability and transparency and a very thorough examination process to try to establish whether or not the internet voting system meets those goals. Um, it, they, it's still a work in progress. Uh, And it's been on pause since the errors that we found, although it may resume later in the year. Uh, But the the bottom line is there's no particularly strong correlation between the quality of the systems and the extent to which they are in use. Mm. Many of you probably know that the New South Wales system crashed uh, at the end of last year for their local government elections which got a lot more press at the time than the uh, cryptographic errors in the verification method that we'd identified uh, a couple of years previously. Actually, a crash is kind of the least of your worries, right? The real worry about internet voting is that everything seems to be fine, but actually somebody else is fiddling the results. And we don't really have
1: a good solution to that problem without a paper evidence trial. So are there... Things you can see with examples of e-voting around the world that give you confidence that it can be built upon so that, you know, the example, the Swiss example or the New South Wales example do become fit for purpose in the future? Or is this sort of not the pathway we should be taking?
2: Voting in a polling place, sure. There are sensible solutions for voting in a polling place. But voting over the internet, I don't see that working in Australia anytime soon. The real problem that we can't solve is giving you evidence that your electronic vote matches your intention without giving you the opportunity to sell information about how you voted and hence expose yourself to coercion. We don't know how to do both of those things. Could you
1: just elaborate on that for me a little bit? I'm kind of keen to understand how that plays out.
2: So, like I said before, there's only two things you want from an electoral process, right? You want evidence that it gets the right answer And you want each person to be voting privately so that other people can't bully or harass or bribe them to change their vote. We know how to do those things in a polling place, but we don't know how to do those things over the internet. There are some kind of fancy cryptographic techniques for trying to help you challenge the uh, electronic vote that you've made, but they're really only usable for serious geeks. Um, And to be honest, um, I don't think they are feasible for ordinary voters and i don't think in practice they would give us the assurance that we need
0: can i throw another curveball
1: <laughs> yeah Catherine, Catherine, jump in
0: we're talking a lot about e-voting and electronic voting i think sometimes when you're talking about cyber risks to ele- to elections there's an assumption that the only cyber risk would be at the point of voting. The reality is, is that there are electronic uh, digitalised systems that we already use in Australia uh, and that we will increasingly use to run our elections, which, as I said before, is one of the most complex undertakings in the country almost. It's huge. Um, If I think about what some of those big electronic systems are, that would be our electoral roll, right? So that's a record, possibly the most complete record uh, database on Australians that there is 17 million, just over 17 million Australians are on that that database. Uh, we've got an election management system. That, that's what controls for the AEC th- information like polling locations, which is communicated on their website, uh, early results, which go onto their website and then updates as the election uh, continues in, in time. Now, both of those are predominantly electronic systems. They're both about 35 years, if not Older, Uh, They're written in a legacy language that uh, not many people have the skills to read and interpret. So they're two huge uh, electronic systems that we will need to update to maintain their security over time. And they've also proved in other countries to be uh, kind of valuable targets for foreign interference and nation state hackers looking to mess uh, with those elections.
1: Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We are talking about the future of elections. Our guests this week. Vanessa Teague uh, from Thinking Cybersecurity and ANU. And also from ANU, uh, Catherine Manstead, also from CyberCX. Mark Fennell is my name. We've been talking a lot about the act of voting. But before you hit that moment, you get pummeled with advertising. Now, of course, lots of people will know that there is usually an advertising blackout on traditional media uh, sometime before the day itself. But that blackout at the moment, at least, does not extend online. I think lots of people will found, particularly in the last few elections, that they were pummeled with advertising on, on social media, right? up until the day itself. And then there was push notifications on text messages. Catherine, is it time that we re-examine our rules around advertising during elections?
0: This is the easiest question ever, Mark, because the answer is a simple yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think there's two, there's two things that we need to think about. One is the advertising and in particular, uh, the, the word micro-targeting Um, comes to mind. So micro-targeting is where you send ads to segments of the population. It's a problem uh, potentially because there's not much transparency. Often it's hard to see which messages have been received where and you end up in a situation where campaigns or different activists are incentivised to tell different stories to different parts of the population, which doesn't sound very good for democracy overall. The other part of this problem, though, is what enables digital advertising to occur. What enables that is the collection and harvesting of data at scale in order to engage in digital analytics and then to uh, curate and cater campaigns to people whose data is being used. Now, that's a problem in Australia, um, you mentioned in terms of, of advertising there's the lack of the blockout that's one the other problem i see is that the use of data by political parties is pretty opaque so political parties in australia campaigns are exempt from the privacy act um, but what we do know is that they have some of the most significant troves of information on their constituents of anyone uh, partly that's because they have access to that electoral role, I mentioned before, the the biggest database on Australians that we've got. It's also because every interaction as a constituent that you have with your local member and with your political parties uh, and campaigns in your area uh, is recorded. And it's also a function of the, uh, dare I say, surveillance capitalist model of the internet, uh, that there is so much data about people available and available for sale. So just like any company uh, or ad provider, political campaigns can buy access to data from data brokers as well. All of that is a relatively opaque process. To me, we need to fix it, one, for the integrity domestically of our politics, but two, uh, because if our politicians can use this data and engage in micro-targeting ads uh, for arguably the purposes of good and and democracy, getting their message out, so too can bad guys, foreign interference uh, actors, um, those we wouldn't want to be uh, using that data and interfering with our democratic political
1: process. There's something you said there that just absolutely stood out to me, which is they're exempt from the Privacy Act. Why, Catherine?
0: Look, I think... There are exemptions for political parties and campaigns from a range of of other rules and regulations that apply to society at large, partly because of their special place. They need to be able to um, operate in a way that lets them talk to to citizens. They don't want to be hamstrung. Um, And maybe in the past, in a pre-digital age, that was okay. I don't think it's okay now. For the reasons I, I said, one, the integrity and trust in our system, but two, whatever the quote-unquote, good guys do, the bad guys will do eventually. And we've seen this in the US. We saw at the 2012 presidential election... Obama's campaign used digital analytics and digital marketing to great effect and that was heralded as the gold standard for Western democracy. Of course, four years later, we saw the Russian government interfere in US politics using many of the same tools. So if we don't get it right for ourselves, we can't expect uh, to be able to prevent uh those that shouldn't be playing in our democracy from using the same tools or, or stealing um, the data or the, the access and information that our political parties have and then using them for really bad effect.
1: Vanessa, if I was to hand you a, a magical wand at this exact moment um, and you power to change anything about the way we uh, advertise in the lead-up to an election, the way we manage data in the lead-up to an election, what would you change today?
2: Well, I completely agree with everything Catherine just said. Better privacy law
1: restricting
2: micro-targeting and the associated privacy inversions. Uh, This is my cue to say it would be nice if the ABC stopped passing highly detailed weekly de-identified information about exactly what everybody is viewing on iview to third parties. Uh, Every little bit helps. So I think I would like to see better privacy law um, across the board. Restricting micro-targeting.
1: Okay, the Catherine brought up something there, uh, which with the, the reference to um, misinformation in the lead up to uh, elections, this was something that uh, you know increasingly is getting attention. Um, is it overreported, underreported, or is it something that need, does need to be paid more attention to? And do people need to become more literate of at the moment, Vanessa? Honestly, I don't know. It hasn't
2: been much reported in Australia, but that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I mean, I think Australian elections are harder to target than the corresponding US elections for exactly the kinds of reasons that Catherine was talking about before. The US has a history of very poor, very insecure, very non-transparent electoral processes based on paperless electronic voting machines. And that's created an environment of distrust. Even though actually, ironically, by 2020, a lot of them had been retired and replaced with much better systems, the distrust that had been built up over decades remained. Whereas Australia has a much more, mostly much more established history of good paper-based processes. So the extent to which you can get a stupid story about election manipulation off the ground is just much less because people can see that it's mostly being done correctly.
1: Mm. Vanessa, this is, um, you know, in the the proliferation of, of stories around misinformation and disinformation, I know that Facebook and other different social media services have sort of been tasked with the job of rooting it out on a technical level, but is it something that requires... Is it something that can only be solved with a technical solution? You know, is it something that requires uh, more than the Facebooks and Twitters of the world to apply, you know, filters and moderators? Good question.
2: I don't think anybody really knows the answer to this question. I think it's important to remember that the algorithms that those companies put in place deliberately to sell more ads are exactly the algorithms that also drive the amplification of highly emotive messages, right? Highly emotive messages directly targeted to your fears and weaknesses and pre-existing preferences, those are the ones that Facebook and Twitter's and Instagram's algorithms are targeting at you. It's not a coincidence that those platforms are massive and magnificent amplifiers of misinformation. So there's a kind of a fundamental problem here in expecting those Entities to be the uh, arbiters of, to be the enforcers of taking that stuff off the net, because fundamentally they design the algorithms that produces the problem we have in the first place, and they design the algorithms that way because they can make a buck out of doing it that way. So I don't think asking them nicely to do it themselves is the complete solution. I think there has to be some serious regulatory. I think there have to be some serious laws with serious penalties, perhaps like the European GDPR. Do you think there's an appetite for that for now here? Yeah, I hope so. Mm. Uh, there's certainly some discussion about reforming Australia's Privacy Act and I think that would be a big step forward.
1: I guess in some ways it comes down to, Catherine, something of a conversation around the fact that this isn't just a technical problem, it's it's also a people problem and you can't quite extract the two from each other. And, and of course, then there's the role of regulation. And so for you, when it comes down to to tackling misinformation, disinformation, are there things that you would like to see done that could be done today that would make uh, the flow of that would make the flow of misinformation and lead up to elections harder?
0: So I'm going to do something I don't do often, which is give a little bit of credit to big tech at this point. So in the last couple of years, we have seen some moves by the Googles, Facebook slash Meta and Twitter of Twitters of the world to reduce the risk of mis- and disinformation, particularly around elections. So uh, take Google, for instance, they have reduced the... Uh, categories that they have available for political interest targeting. So back in 2016, the the, the fated 2016 US election, they actually were selling political ads that would target American voters based on whether they, according to Google's algorithms, were left-leaning or right-leaning. They've stopped doing that. So now a lot of micro-targeting via uh, the big platforms, uses more traditional demographics like your age or your location as opposed to the more sensitive identity and political characteristics about you. That's good. Uh, A lot of the platforms as well uh, now take a much more concerted effort to take inauthentic content off their platforms. So uh, that's where... You know, troll farms are amplifying particular messages and it's not transparent who is behind that message. So they've they've done certain steps. Taiwan's election a couple of years ago was a real test case, I thought. Uh, Facebook actually set up what it called a war room where it was working in real time to take mostly Chinese uh, disinformation off uh the Facebook platform, but what else can we do? I think Vanessa alluded to this problem that yes, maybe our big tech platforms are doing something, but ultimately there's no big stick to enforce that, and that's problematic for a democracy. Um, there's been a few recommendations the last year. Uh, a Senate committee uh, into foreign interference via uh, social media made a recommendation that the Australian government really needs to clearly delegate accountability for this type of cyber-enabled foreign interference, particularly around elections. And they need to designate um, authority and also resources to a particular department to hold social media platforms to account to their own standards or to standards that Australian government sets. We don't have that yet. And that's when I look forward to the next election, uh, potentially a huge risk for Australia.
1: I guess we'll just have to wait and see. We are out of time. Catherine Manstead from uh, ANU and CyberCX, thank you so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. And Vanessa Teague, CEO of Thinking Cybersecurity and also from ANU and a cryptographer, thank you so, so much for joining us on the program.
2: Thank you, Mark. Good talking to you.
1: And with that, I shall leave you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show.